No, Francine. He needs a prince. What the hell are you doing? Me? You're the one making a move. I was just napping on this pedestal in the perfect light in my most prettiest dress. Welcome to Welcome to Storybrook. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we are here with a brand new chapter of Welcome to Storybrook. A brand new book. A brand yeah, a brand new book. Yes, book nine. We're on book nine now. Yeah. Book nine. The Clone Saga. Book nine, the Clone Saga. Which, by the way, is different from the Clone Wars, right? Clone Wars is Star Wars, Clone Saga is Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Although now- it's all owned by Marvel. As is everything. And Disney. Yes. It's all owned by Disney. Just like this show. Which, okay, I'm going to be honest here. I was kind of in and out the whole episode. Yes, it's time for the rise of the long speeches. I don't feel like I have a short attention span, but these speeches feel like they last just short of forever. Yeah, I think that's accurate. There's a bit in here, we'll get to it later, but where Mary Margaret and Regina are talking, and I'm like, my god, I've I've aged 50 years. Whose hands are these? But let's get into it. Yeah, we don't need to do long speeches. We can just jump in. Oh, by the way, this is season six, episode one, The Savior. I would like to uh, talk about the Savior mythology. Oh, by all means. So this season opens, as is traditional for a season of Once Upon a Time, with someone riding a horse across a big open field. They pay to be on the field location once a year, apparently. But unlike other times, this person is being chased by someone shooting bolts of magic from a flying carpet. It's pretty awesome, I'll be honest with you. So, And by the way, this flashback sequence doesn't go through the rest of the episode. This flashback that opens the episode is the only flashback in the whole episode. Huh, you're right. I, I didn't notice at the time, but yeah. And that's because in this episode, we go back and forth between current time and dream space. And the dream space is kind of a flashback because it's Belle remembering when she was captured by Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, it's a, it's a liminal space. Right. But yes, there's no proper flashback in this episode. But I'm sorry, you were saying about the savior. Okay, uh, actually, I think we should finish the opening scene before we start talking about the savior. Because what a savior is has changed dramatically since season one. And I feel like even more in this season where a lot of last season was fleshing out the dark one mythology, as it were. That's correct. And the season before that as well. Yeah. And this season is going to get more into savior mythology, which... Let's not hide the ball here. The weirdness is that in season one, the savior is what Emma is specific to the curse. And now it's a title, like the slayer or the chosen one. Okay, okay. I want to talk about this scene before we get into that, because I have a lot about... The savior slash slayer Commonalities? Yes. All right, let's do it. So 
the guy who we saw riding through the desert bursts into this temple and he's like, hey, hey, Jafar's coming. You better look out. And this girl's like, oh, oh, sweetie. Oh, sweetie. I can see the future. Your whole deal was super unnecessary. And I wouldn't be making retirement plans if I were you. Yeah. And then Jafar bursts in looking pretty cute. Although... Not as cute as the Jafar they cast in the live-action Aladdin movie. Oh, my. Okay, uh, you're probably familiar with this actor. I apologize. I've only seen his name written out. I've never read it out loud. This is Oded Fair. Uh, you might remember him from the Resident Evil movies or the first Deuce Bigelow movie where he was the gigolo Deuce Bigelow was replacing, in which case I feel so bad for his clients. Well, he, he was also in uh, he was also in the Mummy. He was. He was also in the Mummy, where they were going to give his character way more facial tattoos, but then he ended up being so pretty that they didn't want to. And of course, his most famous role, a Zanku and Charmed. Oh dear Lord, I forgot about that. We're gonna be talking about that later. Stay tuned for Welcome to the Hallowell Manor. So what's interesting here is that Once Upon a Time has already had a Jafar. Uh, Jafar, who was played by Saeed from Lost. Talk about hot. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay, now I'm ranking Jafars, okay? <laughs> All right. So, in in order of hotness, it's Jafar from the new live-action movie. Mm-hmm. Jafar from early Once Upon a Time. This Jafar, cartoon Jafar. But anyway, I guess this means that the... I, I know it, it's definitely been not canon for a while, but I guess this is the final nail in the Wonderland spinoff not being canon coffin. Yeah, which reminds me, especially because we're going to do so much Bell here. Where's Will Scarlet? Mm, mm. No, Seri- seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Will Scarlet? But speaking of hotness, dear God, this Aladdin is so fucking hot. Well, I mean, he'd have to be. Aladdin has to be hot. That's just the rule. Well, you should tell the people who are doing the new Aladdin movie. Oh, right? I mean, he's fine. The new Aladdin is fine. I mean, I have to I have to say here that coming of age during the Disney Renaissance, as I did, Aladdin was the movie that was like my movie. That's the one that I wore out the VHS of. And when I say I wore out the VHS of it, what I mean is, oh my! I had the cassette tape of the soundtrack, and I would play the cassette tape over and over and act out the movie with the cassette tape. So just so you know the level of nerdery that we're dealing with right now. I'm glad we would have been friends at literally any stage of our lives. It's true. But, yeah, we've got a super hot Aladdin here, which... I'm very confused by this show's casting of men, because sometimes you get, like, Merlin, or Aladdin, and sometimes you get Eric. You remember Eric? Yeah, I remember Eric. You're the only one, then. He was fine. You know what? I think maybe the... Look, they all look good on paper. I think maybe the issue is charisma chemistry it's not something that apparently the people doing casting on once upon a time are able to sense yeah which is weird because we have had like philip was attractive and engaging and you do get those actors who aren't traditionally 
handsome, but sort of have an air of handsomeness about them. Well, Merlin is the perfect example of this because he looks fine, you know, if you just look at a picture of him. But when I'm explaining to people how hot he is, I usually find an animated GIF to show them because you need to see him in motion to see his, like, yeah, there's hotness. A, there's a body language component to it. This has been Hot or Not, the <laughs> storybook edition. So Jafar kills the messenger guy and the girl's like, I saw you coming because I can see the future. And Jafar's like, yeah, whatever, and throws her into a wall. And then he gets really pissed at Aladdin. He's like, you were nothing when I found you. And then you became the savior. And now look at you. You're a filthy garbage person now. Which I guess means, and this isn't too shocking, but I guess that means that we are going with the Disney version of events where Jafar found Aladdin specifically to go into the temple and not the actual Arabian Nights version where Jafar is Aladdin's uncle. But we should stick with the Disney version anyway, because the Arabian Nights version has some serious consent issues when it comes to Aladdin and Jasmine. And this is from the realm of fairy tales. So compared to Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, we've got some consent issues. And just putting this as a much, much, much secondary thing, there's also some structural issues to the original Aladdin story. Well, I mean... The whole ring genie thing. Well, the structure of Arabian Nights, and I think this is interesting. That's just tangent about Arabian Nights. Mm. It's Aladdin, it's the right time to tangent about Arabian Nights. Yes. The structure of Arabian Nights, as I'm sure most people here are aware, is the story of Scheherazade. Who's trying to stop her husband from cutting off her head by telling him a different story every night so he doesn't get bored with her. Right, so she tells him most of a story... And then the next night she tells him the end and then starts a new story so that for a thousand and one nights he doesn't kill her because he wants to hear the end of the story. And then by the thousand and first night he's in love with her and doesn't kill her. Mm. That sounds like a great way to start a relationship. I know, right? Let's not even worry about that. But it's interesting because it's making the subtext of what fairy tales are text. Because fairy tales are there to teach a moral lesson. But they also have to walk the line of being engaging for children, but also soporific enough to put them to sleep. Mm. So Arabian Nights just puts that all in front of you and says, that's what these stories are for, which is why the structure of Aladdin is tedious. So in this version of Aladdin, which uh, we have sort of a frozen thing where they're just assuming you saw the Disney movie. And I mean, are that's taking fair. for yeah, and are taking for red that some of these events are slightly different in this version, because Jafar makes reference to Aladdin being a savior, but now he's burned out because that's what happens to saviors. He, he tells Aladdin, "You did your job. You brought the story to its conclusion, and now it's done with you." That's a really dark read on what the savior is. And you're right, it's definitely there in the text, but man, that is a dark read. And this sort and Aladdin is having he has very shaky hands, he's lying on the floor, he seems very predefeated. Oh god. Yeah. And Aladdin's like, look, if you're gonna kill me, just kill me. And Jafar's like, why would I kill you? Like, look what Look what being the savior did to you. You're not worth killing. So just keep that in mind for this season when we talk about what saviors are. 
I'd actually like to get into it now. Go bit. for it. All right. The savior is just the slayer now, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Like, in every generation, a uh, chosen one is born. They who will stand against the demons, vampires, forces of darkness. Evil wizards. Except in this case, what's... What's interesting about this is that it is sort of tying back to what we saw a savior being in season one. Uh, in season one, the savior was someone who was written into the curse specifically to end it. And we're seeing that sort of brought into the whole meta narrative being incorporated into the main narrative. Everyone is aware that they're in stories. And now the savior has become a role, someone whose job it is to take a story to its natural ending. Which is really interesting. I hadn't thought about this until now. But Regina's goal in the last few seasons, and the thing that we've been complaining about as an issue, is that these stories, being as they are part of an ongoing television series, cannot have an end. Regina is pursuing a happy ending, but there can be no happy ending because there's always going to be another season. She thinks it's because she's a villain, but it's because of the structure of the story she's in. If you say that the Slayer, look, I'm not even, I'm not even going to edit that. (laughs) If you say that the Savior exists to bring the story to its close, which it does, it would make sense that at the close of the story, and yet it keeps going, it would have some deleterious effects on the Savior. And that is what we're going to see this season, especially the reoccurring way that we're going to see this manifest is with Emma's flashes of her death and the hand tremor that goes with them it's actually really powerful i think it is i don't feel like the show is quite capable of pulling it off though okay i've gone on record as enjoying a different show which some people may mock as being soap opera-y mm-hmm. but during an earlier scene of this i felt like this was less once upon a time and more gray's anatomy which is to say i thought it was doing a good job at the drama at the melodrama. Yes, Grey's Anatomy is my go-to for a show that's good at melodrama. Mm. Which is a skill in and of itself that should not be disregarded, but we can go into how narratives that are intended for more female audiences tend to be derided, and how melodrama is actually a really powerful tool if you're using it correctly, but people tend to look down upon it because it tends to show up in those... More... Oh man, we could do a whole podcast about that. But let's not. Let's talk about Emma and Hook getting it on. Hook has a very conspicuously different haircut than he had last season. Also, his beard is really trimmed down. He's still got scruff, but it it was more of a full beard before and now it's just scruff. It reminds me of that one season jump we had where David suddenly had a, like, suddenly had, like, long floppy hair. It's like that season of Friends where... The season finale ends with Chandler and Monica proposing to each other, and then the next season picks up at that exact moment, but Matthew Perry went to rehab in between, so it's clearly a very different person. Or Arrested Development Season 5, where they actually called it out, Mm. because Arrested Development Season 4 ends with George Michael finally punching out Michael, and then it was two years, three years before they made Season 5, and Michael Sarah looks quite a bit different. And season five opens with the shot from season four of George Michael pulling back his fist and the narrator saying, 
there are some moments that change you forever, <laughs> and then a cut to modern day Michael Sarah having delivered the punch. I thought that was kind of perfect. I have my issues with that season of Arrested Development in that it seemed sort of nihilistic in a way the show wasn't really before. I want to talk in depth about season five of Arrested Development because it seemed Brechtian in its desire to create discomfort in the audience and not in the way American audiences are used to. Not the kind of cringe discomfort comedy that we're used to, but kind of an unsettling David Lynchian discomfort. I, I was thinking it was like if you took a scream of psychic pain and somehow gave it audio and visual form. I mean, I said Brecht. Yes. So Emma and Hook are making out on her couch. I guess this is right at the end of what happened last time. We know it is because we saw the dirigible, the rigid airship, leaving the land of untold stories and in a second we're going to see it arrive in storybrook but first hook and emma are making out pre-coitus on emma's couch and emma's like wait my son and hook's like it's okay he's somewhere else and she's like wait my parents and he's like it's okay there's someone else she's like wait my red leather jacket and he's like leave it on also it's it's emma's house so i really feel like you don't have to worry about people walking in on you having sex as much as you did back um, in the Um, it's the Charmings. True. They have basically no personal boundaries. Again, Emma literally walked in on her parents mid-sex with her kid. Uh, I'm sorry, I should phrase that better. They were not having sex with Henry. She walked in with her kid on her parents mid-sex. So, anyway... They are interrupted not by family members, but by the earthquake that precedes the dirigible coming into town. That seems odd to me that a dirigible would cause an earthquake, but I'm assuming it's a mystical thing and... I think it's from the displacement of an object coming into their world. So everyone shows up on the... I guess... They're, they're in the woods. They're, they're in the field right outside the woods. They're in a field between the woods and Storybrooke. We got a whole bunch of new townspeople. Well, we needed extras so that when Hyde shows up and is like, this is my town now, there were some people to be threatened. Yeah. So Hyde shows up and he's like, this is my town now. And Emma's like, hey, Regina, we should do that thing where we both throw magic at him. And Regina's like, I don't know. I'm not evil anymore. Like, I literally puked up my evil side and then murdered her. I'm not sure if I'm going to still be like powerful. And Emma tells her that she's powerful without being evil and the two of them combine their powers. It's so cute. By the way, Regina's light blasts are now red instead of purple, which implies that good Regina's light blasts are red and evil Regina's light blasts are blue, like she's an anime character. She's been doing the red light blasts for a while though. Has she? Yeah. But she's been good for a while. True. As much as I love Regina, I'm sorry, Emma, I think you're wrong. I think that since Regina's powers were basically rooted in anger, letting go of her evil, letting go of her more negative emotions is going to affect her mystically. Also, she's, she's, she's been doing light magic for like a year and she barely tries at it. Like, is this light magic? Is she doing light magic? I think she is doing light magic. And you're right. Light magic is a different specialty. 
she's stronger at dark magic. And so, yeah, she's not going to be as powerful. Which is probably why their team up, beam up does not work. No, Hyde is able to deflect it and run away. Uh, Again, we talked a lot about how cool Hyde is as a villain last episode. And one of the things I like about him, one of the things I think helps him avoid the glory problem. Mm Mm-hmm is that his powers are strong enough so that he can... Hold his own? Yes, they're strong enough so he can hold his own against the heroes without him being that much more powerful than them. So overpowered that when they beat him in the finale, it feels like a cheat. Yeah, because we've seen him versus Rumpelstiltskin. He was basically powerless against Rumpelstiltskin. His level, as you were, is just... Strong enough not to be immediately taken down by these two women. I think you're right. I think it feels like a good matchup. Anyway, the dirigible crashes. And everyone runs into the woods to find the people who were on it. The people who Hyde says he's brought over from the Land of Untold Stories. Now, running into the woods to find the crash dirigible, this feels so much like Lost to me. And like season two, when the cast of Lost found the tailies. The untold tailies. There's a a whole bunch. I I really noticed the cinematography in this episode. There's this great shot of, unfortunately, David shaking his head as it sort of pans across the wreck of the dirigible. And he's like, it looks like they all got away. Yeah, there's some lovingly filmed wreckage, which again is one of the things that made me get a lost feeling from this. And Jekyll's like, okay, maybe everyone got away, but look, this dirigible was made with the same steampunk technology that Hyde used to create his zappy wands he gives his guards. You know, that za- the zappy wands, which are apparently the only things that can hurt him, and yet he gave them to his subordinates? What? Whatever. So, I bet I can use this wreckage to make another zappy wand so we can zap Hyde and not have to worry about him. It's like Superman, right? And and this is like Kryptonian technology? Yeah, yeah. Although, I do really like the idea that Hyde just happens to be numb to this one kind of magic. He happens to be numb to the magic from the Enchanted Forest, and that's what he's dealing with. That I like that idea, yeah. So they're sorting through the wreckage, and Emma touches something that sends her on a flash forward to a sequence where she's sword fighting with someone, and it is not going well. And this is the first time we see her hand tremor. Emma kind of freaks out a little bit. Her hands start shaking, and someone asks her her what's wrong, and she's like, shut up. Everything's fine. Shut up. I'm okay. I'm okay. Shut up. Oh, Emma. Then we cut to Mr. Gold. And we get a voiceover of him talking to Hyde and Hyde giving him the answer to how to wake Belle so that we don't have to have that scene. And Hyde tells him that the answer is in a place called the Temple of Morpheus, a place that has sands that will allow him to walk into Belle's dreams and wake her from the sleeping curse from the inside. So Rumpel's still in the land of untold stories then? I believe so, yes. So Rumpful bamfs himself into, I mean, it's mist, right? Oh god, it is mist. But yes, he teleports to the Temple of Morpheus and releases Belle from Pandora's box because the temp- 
You know what? I was going to say it's pretty convenient that the Temple of Morpheus has one of those person under a sleeping curse benches in the middle of it. You mean a coma bench? But it's the Temple of Morpheus. Of course it has a coma bench in the middle of it. What else would you have in the Temple of Morpheus? Also, I have to say there's some pretty big stones on this show to call it the Temple of Morpheus, which I know is the Greek god of dreams, but... Considering that this plotline is blatantly stolen from Sandman, it's pretty bold of them to just call it the Temple of Morpheus. They got tired of stealing from fables. Seriously, the Gideon storyline is exactly the Daniel storyline. With just a touch of Connor. (laughs) Yeah, right? Oh, God. So, Rumpel bamps uh, Belle out of her box onto a coma bench where I think she's wearing a different outfit than we saw her going into the coma, but... We should really check that out, but yeah, I think you're right. That's not what she was wearing when she went into her coma. Because I'm pretty sure we would have commented on it because it is ugly. It's a flowery shirt. It looks like a particularly ugly maternity shirt, but when she wakes up at the end of this episode, she's not noticeably pregnant, so I don't know what's going on here. So Rumpel uses some of the Morpheus sand to enter Belle's dreams, like I was gonna say, like a creepy Freddy, uh, like a creepy Freddy Krueger, but I guess Freddy Krueger is kind of creepy to begin with. I was thinking about the movie The Cell. Oh God! Gold goes into Belle's dreams and is immediately greeted by a young man in a cloak who claims to be Morpheus. He tells Rumple that they're in Belle's dream world and that if he wants to wake her up, he has to convince her to wake up, blah, blah, blah. And then we go from dreams to nightmares when Regina returns home to the mayoral mansion and sees that the mansion is in chaos and Zelina is there with baby Robin. Yes, she's been moving in and Regina's like, hey, I, uh, neat. So, so this is what, this is what you're doing now, huh? Now, you might remember from last week that I was going to give Zelina the benefit of pretending that the unfortunate rape storyline with Robin didn't happen since the show wants us to forget about it, the same way that I ignore the grand storyline in order to love Regina. Hmm. Let's see how long that lasts. Let's see how long before I'm annoyed with Zelina again. So... Regina's like, okay, we got a whole new thing to deal with. Uh, Mr. Hyde's in town, and apparently Rumpel sold the town to him. So, Which is, how is that even a thing? And it looks like he's immune to my magic, so we're gonna try something new. Uh, you should probably stay here with the baby, you know, because there's a guy running around who, I guess, is kind of immune to our powers. And Zelina's like, so you're locking me in yet another prison! And Regina's like... That's how long that lasted. Yeah, and Regina's like, Jesus fucking Christ. And Zelina's like, I'm kidding-ish. Like, no, this is nice. It's nice. Your house is nice. Uh, By the way, Roland, you remember the most adorable child ever. Uh, He left a feather for you uh, from Robin's quiver, but I lost it. And I'll probably, like, I'll I'll try to find it. And Regina's like, could you find it? it? It seems like a gift from... My dead boyfriend's son would be a nice thing to have. You know, my dead boyfriend who you got killed. Which, okay, why would Selena even bring that up if she didn't know where it was? Yeah, I mean, I guess she's trying to be more open and honest or whatever, but... 
Also, I mean, I get why Regina's mad, kind of, but at the same time, what are you going to do with that feather, Regina? Well, I'm well, sh- I'm sure Robin left a bunch of crap in your backyard. Well, I think she's angry about a little more than the feather. Yeah, I guess they didn't really have much time to process the whole dead boyfriends thing. So we go from that to Regina at her vault, angrily casting a protection spell around it to uh, keep it safe from Hyde. And Snow White shows up and is like, wow, you are casting some angry spells, aren't you? And Snow's also like, hey, so uh, that aside, you might not even have to worry about that. Jekyll finished his taser thing. Like, we can take care of this before dinner tonight. And Regina's like, fine, great, whatever. And Snow White's like, are you sure you're fine? Because you don't look fine. Believe me, I know what you look like when you're angry, and it's this. And so Regina tells her about the whole thing with losing the feather. And Snow White's like, do you think maybe you're mad about something else? Maybe are you mad that Zelina got your boyfriend killed? She's like, I don't know what I'm angry about. And Snow's like, I'm sure you'll figure it out eventually. And Regina tells her it's time to kill Hyde first. First killing Hyde, then dealing with the sister. Good job, Regina. Good priorities. So, in order to get Hyde out of her office, which I find kind of hilarious, she takes Jekyll and she's like, Hey, Hyde, come out here or or I'm gonna, you know, kill your nerdlier half. Yeah, she's like, I know you want to kill Jekyll, but if you don't come out here, I'm gonna kill him instead, and then what are you gonna do? And... I just have to say, in this scene, it doesn't look like they let Jekyll in on the plan beforehand. Yeah, he's real freaked out. It's kind of hilarious. Also, I know this is kind of counterintuitive to the things we've been saying about Jekyll, about how he's a genuinely menacing presence, but he also pulls some real goofy faces. We talked about it a little bit last episode. It's, I guess, a credit to him that it doesn't detract from him being this menacing dude, that he's also really clearly having fun. Oh, yeah. I think that makes him more menacing. But Hyde comes out and is like, how about this plan? I just take Jekyll from you and also keep this town. Like, I really don't see the need to do anything. Because your powers don't really work on me. So why don't you leave before you embarrass yourself any further? And Regina fire blasts him, which of course does nothing because he is apparently immune from enchanted force magic. And Emma's supposed to jump in with the wand, but instead she's having her flash forwards to dying in a sword fight. And this time she actually sees the hooded figure who she's fighting with. So we're getting longer flash forwards each time. But eventually she snaps out of it and blasts Hyde with the cattle prod. So... Uh, I want to bring something back we used to talk about a lot and have been talking about significantly less ever since, I guess, the show lost its fight choreography budget. What is that? Is that fight choreography? Well, we used to talk a lot about the difference between high fantasy violence and real, gritty, unpleasant violence. And it seems like we haven't really had much of the uh, latter recently. The gritty real violence? Yeah, but this is sort of it, because Regina makes, you know, her her hand gesture and a fireball comes out and engulfs Hyde, and Hyde walks through it and just starts choking her. And it is brutal, and it is deeply uncomfortable. 
I hadn't thought about this before you brought that up, but it's also interesting because you're right. It is brutal real-world violence to see Hyde choking Regina. And that's intercut with Emma's flash-forwards to what is essentially high fantasy violence, her sword fight. Yeah. Huh. There's a lot of interplay, which I know it's not, but you could read it as sort of a hint that that's not going to be Hyde that she's fighting. Ooh, yeah. A, a subtle hint, if so. I think it's giving the show a lot of credit, but I'm feeling generous right now. So, uh, Hyde gets tased and falls to the ground, where they then handcuff him with special handcuffs Jekyll made. Kryptonian, uh, Kryptonian shackles. And, okay, this might sound weird, but the expression Hyde has when he's being tased is... Have you seen that video? I think I might have showed it to you. Of that husky falling into a pool. Yes! That's the facial expression Hyde has. It's a very dignified expression suddenly intercut with, Oh no, I did not see this coming. Oh, that's so accurate. (laughs) But Regina's like, Emma, the fuck? She's like, why did you hesitate? What the hell? And Emma's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And... And I was like, you're really not. Like, I know I was just trying to choke her to death, but what's up with you? Hyde actually knows what's going on with her, or at least implies that he does. He's doing a real Hannibal Lecter thing here, where he's like, yes, I might be your prisoner, but Clarice, I'm the only one who knows about the screaming of the lambs. So David and Hook are walking Hyde into the police car, while Emma's trying to have a conversation with him, you know, you guys could stop and let him talk to her. I think they're afraid to. I think they're afraid that he'll manage to talk his way out if they do. And good on them, because if he talked his way out while they let him stand there, you know we'd be yelling at them. True. He tells Emma, you know where to find me, which I thought was interesting when we were watching this because he doesn't know where they're taking him, but he is right to assume that Emma knows where they're taking him. I think if you break down the scene, it's kind of... Let's break down the scene for a bit. Okay. All right. So Regina asked Emma what happened. Is anything wrong? Emma says, nothing was wrong. I'm fine. Hyde says, You're not fine. There is something wrong with you. Emma says, what do you know about what's wrong with me? Hyde says, I know a whole bunch of stuff. If you want to look me up, you know where to find me. I feel like Regina should have some follow-up questions. Because Emma's like, there's nothing wrong. And Hyde's like, yeah, there is. And Emma's like, what do you know? So clearly there is something wrong here. That is a very good point. Huh. All right, then. So we cut to Emma exploring the crashed dirigible, and she's having more what I am choosing to call pre-TSD. That's good. Very good. I like that. Clever. Yeah, apparently getting visions of your own death in the near future kind of... Fucks you up? A little bit. But speaking of things that will fuck you up... Dr. Hopper appears! Dr. Hopper! Yeah, deep cuts here. And... Emma's like, my parents sent you, didn't they? And Hopper's like, yeah, yeah, they did. And she's like, I don't want to be cricket racist, but I don't want advice from a cricket. Yeah, but Dr. Hopper, to his credit, kind of rolls with that. He's like, yeah, I hear that a lot from people who need my help. 
Also, you know it was a dude first, right? It went dude, cricket, dude. He tells her the thing that we talked about at the beginning. You're a savior. You did your saving. And yet things never seem to stop. The story keeps not ending and you keep having to do the savior thing. When honestly, you'd probably just really like to have a pleasant dinner with your family or bone your undead boyfriend. She's like, how do, how do I, how do I fix this? How do I fix myself? And he's like, there's not really a shortcut to fixing yourself. And Emma doesn't take his advice. And to Emma's credit, it's not helpful because Dr. Hopper is approaching this as though this is a problem with her psychologically and not a situational problem where things don't stop. This is not something Emma wanted. This is not something Emma can stop. She's, again, it's a slayer thing. She had this foisted upon her and it's not going to stop until she's dead. Her life is just going to be a series of escalating crises until she is dead. And so she decides to go to Hyde for help. Hyde, who is apparently being kept not in the jail cell at the police station, but in the cell in the asylum underneath the hospital. We don't see that. We don't see her going to the hospital. You would only know this if you knew the set, which... We do. I mean, I guess they have a slightly better track record of keeping people locked up here than in the storybook prison cell, which... Do uh, they? Apparently King Arthur just left because the guard fell asleep. God. So Emma's like, you said you knew what was wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And then he does the Hannibal Lecter thing where he's like, tell me about the best meal you ever ate. He talks about how he was a warden and he knows how to recognize a prisoner. That being locked up changes you in ways that you can never really escape from. And then he launches into a thing about how you need either a carrot or a stick to get a mule to do what you want. Implying that Emma has neither. And so Emma tells him, you know what? I was a prisoner. And the worst part about being a prisoner was the loneliness. So you help me or I will just leave and never come back and you'll be all alone forever. Which, by the way, is torture. We do that to prisoners and it's terrible and it's torture. And I know that this is a cool scene, but it's really hard to watch it with the terrible state of the American justice system. That is all. That's true. It reminds me of the end of one of my favorite episodes of Law & Order SVU, which was about this guy who was like a cult leader. Uh-huh. And he would talk young women into letting him do horrible things to them. And then when they tried to come back later, uh, when they tried to report him after he was done with them, he would just manipulate them into killing themselves. That sounds fucked up. And eventually he gets caught and hands up in an institution and he's like i can do my work from here it's fine and olivia benson's all yeah you, you can't because for your own safety i have them i i thought you needed some very intense one-on-one -on -one work so you're not going to see anyone other than a therapist ever i've arranged it so that you have no outside contact see that's horrifying yeah and I mean, I was like, eh, at the time, because, you know. Well, honestly, that's one of the problems with shows like SVU, is that they present criminals who are cartoonishly over the top, so that you cheer for these horrifying outcomes, so that you don't really think about how horrifying it is that we do this to real people. 
Okay, so not going to get too much more political. I'm just going to say that our listeners should look at how horrifying solitary confinement is and the way that it's used in the American justice system. And then we should talk about Belle's dream. All right. uh, Before we do, briefly, there's an Adam Ruins Everything segment about it online that you can watch on YouTube for free. Oh, I'll tweet that out. So we cut to Belle's dreamscape where uh, Rumpel is with Morpheus. Morpheus has brought him to the Dark Castle. The castle where Rumpelstiltskin lived as the Dark One and the one where he had Belle prisoner. And he's like, why would Belle dream about being here? And Morpheus is like, are you unfamiliar with how dreams work? You don't choose what you dream. Your brain is just processing stuff. Very luckily for them, Belle is cleaning a mirror. So when Rumpel walks into the room, he can see himself the way she sees him as the dark one in the mirror. To us and to him, he's Mr. Gold. And I was actually thinking when he was first pouring the sands of Morpheus that they went out of their way to make Robert Carlyle look particularly attractive this episode. And it is, of course, to contrast against him in the horrifying Rumpelstiltskin makeup, which isn't actually that horrifying, but that's why they made him handsome, to contrast. So I want to bring this up now. Uh, I was going to bring it up when it becomes relevant at the end of the episode, but I think it, I think it was a good casting choice for the guy they have being Morpheus that he looks kind of like a grown-up Henry. Oh, he does kind of. That's interesting. Let's file that away until the end of this episode. So Belle sort of wanders off. She's like, oh, Rumpel, I didn't know you'd be back. Oh, oh, dark one, I didn't know you'd be back so soon. She sort of scuttles off. And Rumpel's like, she still sees me like this in her dreams? And Morpheus is like, dude, do you not get how this works? I'm not in charge of the dream. I'm the god of dreams, but she's dreaming how she wants to dream. Rumpelstiltskin also wants to know why the castle looks so creepy and dark. And Morpheus is like, that's how Belle saw it. Because she was a prisoner. And then Rumpel's like, but we fell in love here. Which has some implications that no one acknowledges. Mm. And Morpheus then lets Rumpel in on the thing that Would have been nice to know before he used the sands of Morpheus, which is that he has an hour to make Belle fall in love with him, or else she will be trapped in the fire room that we know that you're in when you're under the sleeping curse forever. Presumably unawakable from the sleeping curse. Yeah. And I liked this, by the way. I liked that this was the Beauty and the Beast story flipped. Instead of him having a timeline to make someone fall in love with him which of course isn't in Once Upon a Time, but is in the Disney Beauty and the Beast story. Instead of that, there's a timeline to make Belle fall in love or else she's the one who's trapped in the curse. Or if we're going back to the original story, uh, how the beast only has so long he can be alone before he dies. Yeah. Yeah, Morpheus, that would have been good information to give him ahead of time. I mean, I guess he wasn't- That's not how deals with fairies and gods work. So Rumble tells Morpheus that in this next hour, he will make Belle fall in love with him. And Morpheus says, you're going to lie to her. And Rumble's like, it's, it's not a lie. I do love her. Uh, right? Maybe if you loved her, your kiss would wake her, you asshole. But his plan is basically to just do a fast forwarded version of their relationship. He goes into the room where Belle is pouring tea and she drops the cup and he catches it so that it does not chip. Hmm. 
Yeah, apparently he's unaware of what the metaphor for their relationship is. I mean, he is, but he's like, now our relationship is a porcelain cup instead of a chipped cup. Now our relationship won't cut open your mouth. Look, I'm going to play that song that we listened to, you know, the iconic Beauty and the Beast song that we slow danced to on our honeymoon, which... Let's not get into the weird meta of that, because that definitely exists in the real world, so he knows that he's living through a version of the Disney story, so he's using the music from the Disney story to seduce his wife. Oh, that's too much. That's too much! He asks Belle if she'll dance with him, and importantly, I think, gives her the choice to dance with him, because... Suddenly consent is part of the relationship now. (laughs) Right. And... She does dance with him, which causes the castle to transform into the slightly nicer castle that he remembers. And then he decides to use magic to change her from her iconic bell peasant outfit to her iconic yellow outfit, which we have never seen Belle wear, right? Uh, no, we did when they were dancing on their honeymoon in the ballroom and they were recreating the dance from beauty and the beast she was wearing the same outfit yeah she was wearing the bell dress okay okay so it's sort of he's literally fast forwarding their relationship he has juped her into where they were on their honeymoon interesting okay i didn't remember that she was wearing that dress on their honeymoon you're right that makes a lot more sense you know what this reminds me of what groundhog day Bill Murray has the day with Annie McDowell where everything works out and it's all nice. But then, you know, he wakes up and it's Groundhog Day again. So he tries to do it again, but he's like pushing too hard and moving things too fast and it just freaks her out. So Regina's moping around her office back not in Dreamworld. And Zelina comes in and is like, oh, wow, you defeated Hyde like on day one. I thought it was going to take 12 episodes. Before you defeated him. Also, I don't get Zelina's outfit here. She's got like a faux leather jacket with bell sleeves and and a fedora. And I, I just, I don't get what she's going for. I think she's going for reminiscent of the Wicked Witch, but not quite as pointy. And she's like, but she she notices Regina looks sad and she's like, Regina, why are you sad? And, and Regina's like, because I watched my boyfriend die here like two days ago. And Zelina's like, big fucking deal. I watched my boyfriend die here like two fucking days ago. And then Regina tells Zelina, you know what? I blame you for what happened. And Zelina tries to turn it on Emma. She's like, well, if Emma hadn't made you go to hell with her, then none of this would have happened. And Regina's like, that was not the proximate cause of Robin's death. You were the proximate cause of Robin's death. And then, okay, I'm officially over Zelina again. I gave her the benefit of the doubt, and now I'm officially over her again because of what she says next. Well, before we get into that, I want to point out uh, Regina isn't just talking death here. She She repeatedly hammers in the point, the obliteration of Robin's soul. That's true. When Hades killed Robin, he claimed that by killing him with the Olympian crystal, Robin's soul was obliterated. From a story standpoint, this was to explain why Regina does not immediately go into hell and get him back out, like they just did for Hook, someone much less worthy. Mm. But also it's extra depressing because it means that Robin 
doesn't even get his heroic sacrifice happy ending. Oh, or, or whatever you would call such an ending. Yeah, he got fretted. Yes, Fred from Angel. So she's like, it's it's because of your actions that Robin is gone forever. And Selena's like, you want to talk about actions? Okay, now I'm done with Selena forever. She is mad at Regina for using the Jekyll and Hyde potion without talking to her about it first. Because Regina, and I quote, you destroyed the part of your soul that is most like me. I'm sorry. Uh, Everything Zelina said here made me flash back to my worst moments as a teenager. Oh, God. This feels like a 15-year-old whining at their parent for no good reason. Yeah, so I'm done with Zelina again. She, Zelina says, I'll just take my baby and move out. And then she bamfs away. Oh, well. <laughs> and then we go to the woods where Snow and David, shockingly not the people I'm annoyed with the most in this episode, are looking for the untold tailies. I'm getting more okay with Snow and David because they're basically, I feel like. The more they're used as devices and the less we are actually caring about a plot with them, the more I like them. Yeah, we're getting to a kind of comfortable place where this isn't really their story anymore, and they're aware of it. And I like that, absolutely. Yeah, Snow triggers a uh, a net trap, but she's like, oof, that is sloppy. That is a sloppy net trap. And the fact that it's a sloppy net trap somehow clues her into the fact that these people are not... An army Hyde has called into the town. That they're actually afraid of them. So she's like, hey, guess what? It's cool. We're cool. We just want to help you. There's food at Granny's. We'll meet you there and we'll find you a place to stay. Which, to get political again, is the correct way to greet refugees. Well, they probably still have all the refugee stuff they had from the Camelot people. Yeah, they probably have the Camelot refugee city set up. Those people all went back to Camelot, except Violet. We cut to Emma in a slightly different part of the woods, and Hook runs up to her and he's all, Hey, so apparently Granny's is, like, super full of refugees and we could really use your help, like, throwing food at them. But Emma is not hearing it. She's in the woods because Hyde has told her that she needs to find a red bird. And so she apparently has reverted to a couple seasons ago and does not want to have this discussion with Hook. She tells him she wants to be alone in the woods instead of telling him that she's looking for the red bird. So their relationship is just cycle after cycle of Emma not wanting to talk to Hook. Can you blame her? So Hook is like, I notice your hands are shaking. What's up with that? And she's like, I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. He's like, okay, you're clearly not fine. But you know what? Whatever. I'm going to go throw sweaters at hungry people. She sees the bird out of the corner of her eye. So she's like, yep, go. Go away. I'm good. And he does. He leaves her alone so that she can chase the CGI bird. And the CGI bird leads her to... (gasps) It's that girl from the opening. Yes, the girl who was sitting with Aladdin. Yeah, the girl who got thrown into a wall. And the girl tells Emma that she is an oracle, although apparently not the same oracle that talked to Rumpelstiltskin before he became the Dark One. Not the sort of oracle that has their eyes gouged out and has a separate set of eyes in their hands. Just an oracle that's a young girl. Yeah. And she's like, 
So I can see the future, and I know you've been seeing the future because we're stealing a lot from the Slayer mythology at this point. So you're totally going to eat it. And I was like, but uh, if I see the future, I can change it. And the girl's like, this isn't that kind of vision. You're going to eat it. We cut from that to Regina in back in the mayoral mansion trying to do a locator spell with Robin's quiver. Henry finds her and she tells him that she was doing the locator spell to try to find the feather. And Henry is not fooled. Henry is such a good kid in the scene. He is so good with his mom. He tells her that she's looking for Robin and the reason she can't find him is because he's gone. His soul was destroyed. Henry doesn't say that. Regina says that because that's what Hades told her. And Henry tells her, Why are you believing what Hades said? He's the villain. Of course he said something to hurt you. And And he's like, I don't believe Hades. I believe that Robin's in a good place. And I'm basically omnipotent, so... He believes that Robin got the hero's reward in the afterlife, and since he has the heart of the truest believer, that is now accurate. God, Henry's such a good kid. So we cut back to Belle's dreamscape, where she is still doing her dance with Rumpel, and he quickly fills her in about how his son left him, because as you will recall from seasons and seasons ago... Telling the story about losing his son was one of the things that made Belle love him because she feels pity more than love. Just throwing that out there. And she's like, if you could change for someone you love, would you? And Rumpel says that he is willing to change for her. Baby, baby, I can change. I promise I can change. And then they kiss and she pulls back and is like, oh, I just remembered my whole backstory because this is a dream, not the past. And you are a liar. You break your promises all the goddamn time. Okay, what I really like about this scene is that when they're kissing, you can see the humanity, like, you see the makeup getting peeled away from his mouth and his nose. It's so close to True Love's kiss. She nearly breaks the Dark One curse. It's just, it's such a neat thing because what we've said it before, we'll say it again. The show is at its most powerful when it's at, when it's being subtle. And they don't call attention to the fact that the Dark One makeup is retreating. It's a very small moment and that's why it works. And that's why it makes it so much more powerful when she pulls away and tells him like she loves him and she thinks that he probably loves her, but that doesn't mean that they're a good couple. And I love that because it's true. The fact that they love each other might be enough in a fairy tale, but here in the real world, where they are now, loving each other is not enough if they're toxic for each other, and they are. And she tells him, I can't be with you. I can't have our son with you. And... Morpheus shows up and is like, I am so glad to hear that. Yeah. Okay, I totally love this. Because Rumpel's like, wait, I've still got time left in, in your, you know, that hourglass. And Morpheus is like, yeah, no, that was bullshit. That was all bullshit. Yep, he was just testing Belle. He wanted to see if Belle would protect her child 
from Rumpelstiltskin. And now that he knows that she will, he's going to wake her up. With true love's kiss. And Belle's like, I don't know you? And it takes everyone else on screen a super long time to realize that this is not Morpheus. This is Rumpelstiltskin and Belle's child. Okay, I really like this. It's gonna fall to shit eventually. It's Connor Angel. This is going to be the Connor Angel plotline. But right now, right now, while it's Daniel Morpheus, it's still good. Yeah. And I do like the fact that this guy looks a lot like Henry. Which makes sense because you will recall Rumpelstiltskin is Henry's grandfather. I'm sorry. I know that 99.9% of you who listen to this podcast already know that. But in case there's anyone who downloaded this not watching Once Upon a Time and not listening to us before, (laughs) Rumpelstiltskin is Henry's grandfather. So, Morpheus slash... Let's say his name. It's okay. Gideon. Morpheus slash Gideon tells Belle, good, your instincts are right. Don't trust him. He will destroy both of us. And Rumpel's like, nah, don't listen to him. It's fine. No, seriously, seriously, don't listen to him. And... You know, Gideon kisses her on her forehead and she wakes up. Because as has been widely established through this entire show, true love's kiss does not need to be romantic. It can be, it can be, it can be parent and child. I think this is the first time we've seen it gone child to parent. Of course, but you know, it worked with, it It, worked with Emma and Henry. Yeah. So Belle wakes up and now Belle and Rumpel are sitting on the coma bench in the Temple of Morpheus and Rumpel's like, well, great. You haven't even given birth yet, and already I've screwed up my second family. And then Belle says, if you ever let true love wake you up, then maybe you wouldn't keep losing. And I was just like, god damn, Belle, you tell him. And he takes out the sorcerer's apprentice wand, which I guess just anyone can use now. Well, I mean, Rumpel's really just shown us a lot this episode, how he is a combination of good and evil, so let's, let's let it go. Yeah. And he's like, look, we can talk about this at home. And Belle's like, did you miss what happened in the dreamscape? Like, the literal baby growing inside me gave me a warning about you. I'm going to listen to him. He hasn't screwed me over repeatedly. Belle says we can talk about this in Storybrooke, but we're not making a home together. In Storybrooke, the Oracle and Emma are still having a talk about how what... super fucking dead Emma is. Yes. And I want to point out that the Oracle has a, a scar on her cheek, mm. which I I don't remember if we find out what that is, but I think it's to indicate that this is, I think it's to indicate how much time has passed since the scene we saw at the beginning of this episode. I think she got that from when Jafar threw her into the wall. That's what I mean. So we yeah. can see from the level of healed that it is, how long it has been. Yeah. So Emma's like, I, I've been getting glimpses of this, but I need to see more. I need to see the whole thing. And the Oracle's like, how about if I show you more, but just enough to not be helpful? Look into this bird's eyes. So Emma does, and she sees herself in the fight with the cloaked figure. The cloaked figure, it's a sword fight. The figure knocks the sword out of her hands. She's like, I'm not going to let you hurt them. And the figure's like, okay, and it stabs her. Yes, and her family shows up, and she's trying to protect her family from the cloaked figure, but... It kills her. She gets stabbed anyway. And and during the entire sequence, her hand is shaking. The Oracle tells her that there is 
no way to change this, that this battle she saw is how she's going to die. It's the end of her story. And then she bamps away. Well, she doesn't bamf away. She Batmans out. Emma gets distracted by the CGI bird, and when she turns back around, the oracle is gone. And then we go back to Emma talking to Hyde in the asylum cell, and he's like, did the oracle help you? And Emma's like, you goddamn know she didn't. I feel like, I think this is the first time Emma's realizing that there are other saviors, because Hyde, Hyde tells her, look, you're not the first savior I've met, and this is always how it goes. Uh, the story needs you until it doesn't. And once the story doesn't need you anymore. It disposes you're... of you. Yeah. Well, this is the first time this show has made the savior a position instead of originally just breaking the curse. And then after that, just what Emma was. This is the first time the show has done that. Yes. And Hyde tells her, you know, the savior always dies because the savior has to win every time and a vampire only has to get through once. He talks about how every time she makes a story end, it brings her closer to the end of hers. And now there's a whole bunch of people with stories that haven't ended arriving in town. So I think that this is a good time to mention that this is the first episode of season six, which is the last episode of Once Upon a Time Proper. Hmm. The last first episode of Once Upon a Time Proper. Yes. <laughs> oh, Okay. Emma goes to Granny's to find Hook, and she's like, hey, sorry I blew you off, and then lies to him and says, I talked to Dr. Hopper, and he made me feel all better. Mm, that is a statement that has literally never been true. Right? This should really be cluing Hook in, but it does not. Remember when Hook uh, pretended to kill Dr. Hopper in season two? Remember when a dog told everyone that Regina <laughs> killed Dr. Hopper and they believed it? All right. And then it happens. Okay, so... This is the speech that never ends. We have mentioned on this podcast before that the reason we didn't get through season seven, although we will buck up and get through it for you because we love you. We do. We love you. So we will power through. But the reason we didn't get through season seven when it was airing is because of these long goddamn speeches. This speech is like five minutes long. Regina talks about how she was... She doesn't know how to be a member of a family, and she realized that she was a terrible stepmother to Mary Margaret. And Mary Margaret, how did you maintain hope when I was trying to set you on fire and turning you into a mermaid and shit? And... Okay, I forgot she turned her into a mermaid. Yeah. And Mary Margaret's like... She she gives this speech about hope, which Regina would have made fun of several seasons ago. Remember she had that joke about... What, does the Hope Council give you a dollar every time you say the word hope? Because in a weird way, Regina's the one who taught her how to hope by killing her dad and then trying to murder her. Yeah, Regina taught her how to hope because Regina made it so that she needed to hope, right? When she was just happy and a princess, there was nothing to hope for. She just had everything. When Regina took that all away, then she got to hope for things. And then Regina's like, you're right. I hope... That Robin is in the good place. And since I hope, then I believe and have faith. And oh, Then Regina talks about the untold tailies and how they're running away from their lives. And she realized that she was always running away from her life. Hold on. And that she was always running away from her life. She doesn't say it, but she built an entire cursed town to hide from her life. Yeah. She's like, I thought all of these tailies were, you know... 
giant losers because they created a whole country where they could run away from their problems and not have to finish their stories. But like, I, I literally did that. That was the thing I did. Yeah, I mean, that was that was her whole shtick for all of season one. I mean, I created a town because, come on, I'm one person, but... Yeah. So we get like a 10 second thing of Rumple standing next to the comb bench and he's like, huh, you know what? I am kind of a shitty dude. We also get a montage of the tailies coming to Granny's and being given blankets by Hook and Emma. And we see Belle staring forlornly at Mr. Gold's shop because, you know, this is old all... habits die hard. This is all over a speech that Regina's giving about how to some people she's a hero and to some people she's a villain. But the important thing is that she knows what she needs to do and she needs to start a new story where she can define who she is. One where the evil queen isn't a part of her story. She's doing the Zach Braff wrap it up scrubs montage. Oh, and Emma walks out of Granny's and we see that she still has the hand tremor Mm. because of course she does. So Regina is going to start a new story, one that the evil queen is not a part of. And I do like at the end of her speech, we see a feather kind of fall out of the sky and land on the bench where she was sitting. Uh, Forrest Gump is already a told story. Yeah, I know. I know. It's kind of Forrest Gumpy. But I think that it's intended to tell us that Robin is in the good place and is watching out for Regina. And I like that. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like that fits with what we saw because after his body was killed, we saw his soul stand up, wave at her, and then disappear in blue lights rising up to the sky. That seems more going to heaven than being destroyed to me. But... It really does. All right. Then we see Zelina walking into her farmhouse. Yep, she's back in the farmhouse from season three. And the evil queen is sitting by the fireplace, having made them both some grasshoppers. I thought they were green apple martinis. That is equally likely. You know what? You know what? Yeah, that's what it is. It's definitely a green apple martini. Because the thing that's on the side of the glass is a very thin slice of apple. It's pretty great. Actually, a green apple martini is the perfect thing to offer if you are... The evil queen greeting the Wicked Witch of the West. It is. It wow, thematically. It's, oh it's so perfect. We should start drinking some of those instead of our normal hot chocolate with cinnamon. Mm, or cider was the other thing. Yes. I'm, we should add to our alcoholic once upon a time repertoire. Yes. And it's going to be the only way to get through these goddamn long speeches. Was JD from Scrubs secretly an evil magical uh, witch queen? With his apple teenies? I mean, I think maybe. Anyway, the evil queen tells Zelina that it's so ironic that she finally got a sister and it's the wrong one. But, you know, they should have a talk sister to sister. And then she offers her an apple martini. And OK, I just love how much Lana Priya is eating as much scenery as humanly possible. It's so weird how this show had Regina give this super long speech that just made me want to turn everything off and never watch Once Upon a Time again. And then it sucked me back in with Lana Perea doing the evil queen shtick for like 10 seconds. And she barely says anything here. She's like, so you always wanted a sister and then you got one and she sucked. Well, here I am. And that that's basically it. And that's the end of this episode. So this show is partially listener supported. 
If you want to become one of our supporters, go to our website, www.ilovetelevisionzines, and click on our Patreon link. We would like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, and Ryan. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can always rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this episode, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash ilovetelevisionzines. We can also be reached at I love TV zines on Twitter or at I love television zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to Storybrook. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Give him two lips like roses and clover. Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over. Sandman.